Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peacebuilding calendar. It's a week of events, workshops, videos, and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. Founded on the core belief that each person, actor, and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2020, held from the 2nd to the 6th of November with both live events and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at genevapeaceweek.ch. The coronavirus crisis is speeding up the emergence of a new world order that shakes the very foundations of global peace and security. A global power shift is in the making as tensions between the United States and China are rising by the day. And vaccine nationalism could become the latest symbol of declining international cooperation. At the same time, rapid technological change gives new tools to advance and fuel conflicts. It is clear that the practice of peace mediation needs to adapt to this new reality if it wants to stay relevant in the future. The question is how to do it. This is the topic of discussion in this exclusive episode of CMI's Peace Talks for the Geneva Peace Week 2020. I'm your host, Antti Emmela, CMI's Communications Manager. And just to give you a bit of context, the Crisis Management Initiative, or CMI, is an independent Finnish conflict resolution organization that was founded by Nobel Peace Laureate Martti Ahtisaari exactly 20 years ago. This episode of CMI's Peace Talks is done in collaboration with the Changing Character or War Center of the University of Oxford and the Geneva Center for Security Policy. My guests today are Annette Idler, Director of Studies at the Changing Character or War Program at the University of Oxford, and Jean-Marc Rickley, Head of Global Risk and Resilience at the Geneva Center for Security Policy, and CMI's Program Director, Wille Brummer. It's a pleasure to have you all here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. So, dear guests, to set the scene, what is your analysis of current key trends affecting the field of peace mediation? Annette, would you like to start? Most of the world's lethal conflicts are multi-party conflicts with quickly shifting alliances among and between actors. And this, of course, has several implications for peace mediation and peace building more generally. What we see in cases of multi-party conflicts where one or a few armed actors demobilize, but the other ones remain present, is not the disappearance of the conflict, but often simply a reshuffling with new forms of what I call non-state order emerging. And that often includes splinter groups, it includes militias, they may not have political objectives, and therefore are much harder to engage in peace talks than a large hierarchically organized group, for example. So let me just give you three examples from my own work on this. Mm. First one is Colombia. The Colombian government and FARC, the rebel group, they signed a peace deal in 2016. 2017, the FARC demobilized. And when I visited local border communities close to the demobilization camps shortly afterwards to understand how they experienced and perceived this change, they were actually not happy at all. Um, After the FARC had left, many other armed actors tried to fill the power vacuum And from the locals' perspective, this was even more worrisome than the situation before. Another example is, um, second one is Myanmar, where I also carried out fieldwork earlier this year. Mm. If you look at the national ceasefire agreement in 2015 there, it was signed by some, but not by all groups, not all signatories adhered to it. 
Again, this puts local communities in very tough positions because it's not always clear which armed actor imposes the rules of the game, so to speak, and for how long. And peacebuilding efforts face similar issues. And then perhaps the most um, powerful example is Syria, where the card descent at some point counted, I think, up to 7,000 different groups, or at least those who wanted to be seen as groups, mm. with many of them engaging in quickly shifting alliances with each other. And again, if you don't know who is on whose side and for how long, how can you effectively mediate? Now, this is, of course, not new as such, but the number of actors is increasing and the way in which they interact as well. And this is what makes them so, so hard to address now. And that is then related to the other trends that Hannah mentioned as well, the mm. transnationality of conflict and the use of technologies through the development of new communication technologies, for example, the speed at which information has become available, often instantly via um, social media, has made conflict dynamics much more volatile. It has meant that armed groups can now recruit via Twitter or YouTube, for example, and also that incidents far away can trigger events very close by. So the international community often lags behind with their responses because of this dynamism. And I guess, yeah, we need to get better at anticipating that change rather than reacting to it. Mm. So a highly complex situation in, in, in many, many of today's conflicts. Jean-Marc, how do, how do you see this? Right. So, no, I concur with what has been said. Uh, indeed, there is a change in norms, a change in uh, the character of conflict in the sense that uh, there is a, an increasing number of actors that are uh, on, the, on the ground and also the world of technology. Um, I would add to this that um, we are currently probably witnessing an inflection point in the polarity of the international system. We inherited from the end of the Cold War of a system that was characterized by the hegemony of the United States. And uh, with 9-11, uh, with uh, the US uh, commitment in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the, the power of the United States has been heavily challenged. And at the same time, we've seen the rise of China. And what we currently witness is with the current US administration is uh, the US retreating uh, from international affairs, China becoming much more active. So uh, this universal system is shifting towards maybe a duopoly or maybe a multipolar system. And in that kind of system that creates uncertainties and that um, increases conflict. But it's not just the polarity that is changing, it's also, as was mentioned earlier, the type of factors that are uh, involved in this. And um, it is no longer the case that we only have state actors uh, waging war. Uh, we are witnessing groups and sometimes individuals that could have impact on uh, conflict. So there is a democratization of violence. And this leads to a change in the character of warfare where states uh, might be uh, less interested to be politically exposed to conflict and increasingly relying on, uh, on, on surrogates. And this is the thesis uh, we put forward with my co-writer Andreas Kriegs from King's College in a book published last year about surrogate warfare. And we argue that a warfare in 21st century 
is increasingly uh, waged by states and non-state actors using either or, or both uh, human or technological surrogates. And this is also a key development that technology with a development in emerging technology, especially artificial intelligence, that uh, will uh, allow increasing autonomy in a weapon system will uh, develop characteristics of true technological surrogate. That means that uh, technology will be able to um, have an independent role in a conflict. And that is something that is very different from what we had uh, during the Cold War. So it's uh, the, the, the Cold War, we knew proxy warfare, but most of the time it was um, states that were uh, delegating power to armed state groups on the ground. And now uh, this uh, delegation of authority of violence has actually gone to a new level where it can be delegated to single individual, to technological surrogates, but also non-state actors could use uh, surrogates. Mm. So, Will, is it fair to say that the um, uh, the COVID-19 crisis is aggravating some of these key trends that Anet and Jarre Marka are, are mentioning here? What would you say? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I would say that um, uh, the the period of last uh, six months have been certainly a, uh, certainly an experiment on on what happens when when people are more isolated uh, inside their countries and, and between the countries and what's the effect to the um, uh, global system. In general, I think that uh, what comes to the COVID-19, I think that at the end of the day, it hasn't uh, created so much new trends, but I think that it has strengthened uh, the several trends, especially on the on the national tendencies and also, also the um, uh, expanded uh, the how would say uh, tools and uh, and the issues which uh, 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 different parties can do uh, use in 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 the war. Just reflecting on on what um, uh, Annette and, and Jean Marc was saying, I fully agree. Uh, there's more and more actors <laughs> and uh, more and more uh, shady connections uh, between the different actors, and I think that this is the the big trend that we see that the connectivity both uh, uh, implicit explicit known and unknown connectivity between the different actors i think that that's increasing and it's not only uh, between the um, uh, uh, so-called uh, uh, conflict parties but uh, 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 similarly it's between the different actors in the uh, uh, international community and I think that that's the challenge that, that we are facing. So at the end of the day, it's very difficult to define on who are the actually actors in the conflicts and war, and uh, who are the actors in, in uh, uh, supporting the peace process. If these are not same actors, they are at least closely linked actors. And of course, um, I think that the one, one element as well is that um, uh, both uh, uh, countries and actors in the conflict zones, as well as uh, uh, in the international community, because of the connectivity, uh, I think that the agendas of the of the different actors are more and more driven by the internal politics. So it's increasingly difficult to analyze uh, uh, any actor 
and and think on what's the foreign policy, what's the foreign policy priorities. But it's more and more driven by the internal dynamics, mm. and not only uh, in a balanced way, but many times the leaders are speaking only to their own constituencies. Of mm. course, this has been um, um, a long-term development, but uh, for example, um, many people say that now in the US uh, you cannot find uh, a bipartisan foreign policy, but many analysts uh, analyze the U.S. foreign policy based on the internal developments rather than uh, U.S. strategic interest in, in uh, globally. So, mm. so that's uh, how I would say additional component that would I would add to the um, uh, what uh, Jean-Marc and Annette was saying, and that's uh, the piece which, at the end of the day, changes not only the character of war but the character of peacemaking as well. Mm. I think it's quite telling that the. Um United Nations was established exactly 75 five years ago to maintain peace in, in the world, but now seems powerless in the face of many, many conflicts. So currently several UN-led peace processes are facing difficulties because deadlock in the UN Security Council prevents an effective mandate. So, and this is largely due to rising tensions between great power, powers. Um, the question is, what, what does an effective peace mediation mandate look like in this current geopolitical climate? Annette, what is your, your view on this? Well, I think um, what's very important right now because of the, the deadlock that you, that you mentioned is that we need to understand what was mentioned before about the, the new type of actors that are relevant. And that refers not only to the to the conflict actors or the ones that are engaging in violence, but also the ones that are there to um, to solve issues and, and to mediate. So I think there's a need really to em embrace new actors that relates to regional organizations. It relates to independent organizations, including um, like CMI, for example. Mm -hmm. But I also feel that um, it's very important to also think through what can be done at the local level and how. And I would like to just yeah link that back to the the current situation of of COVID nineteen. I mean, the UN is not completely powerless. We've seen the global call for ceasefire as mm. an appeal to make humanitarian access possible. Um, the UN Secretary General um, started the call in in April. We know there was lots of delay, of course, until um, the um, UN Security Council um, came. To that conclusion as well in, in July, but we also know that in by May 16 armed groups unilaterally declared ceasefires. That included Colombia, the Philippines, Saudi Arabia and Yemen. So even though it was delayed and yes um, that doesn't mean that it stayed like that um, for a long time in many of these places we are back to fighting, there is still some force there. On the other hand there are actors at the local level that can be effective when the when the UN is not. And I think this is crucial again right now in this moment where actually inequalities have been reinforced, I would argue, through the through the pandemic. I mean, we know that in many places where it's essential to keep on going, where it's essential to um, Im implement peace building initiatives and mediation, these are the ones that are now even more abandoned because of lockdown measures. Um, because of simply the, the stopping of, um, of operations. 
So there is um, an opportunity as well to really show that at least at the local level through other organizations, through NGOs, um, mm. regional organizations, that the momentum keeps on going. Mm. Jean-Marc, how do you how do you see this um, in the in the absence of, of well-functioning Security Council? What does an effective peace mediation mandate might might look like? Yes. I concur with Annette in a sense that uh, the the UN um, can be perceived as powerlessness on the ground. I think that the role of the UN has always been to be uh, a norm setter, and even though the global ceasefire uh, first took time to 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 be implementing it has not yet been implemented, but it creates an environment where still the norms is. Is is out there. So uh, at the normative level, the UN is has ha, has has a key function. Now at the more operational level, the situation is much more complicated because um, it used to be the conflicts. I mean, you were engaged in a war, and the the objective was to clear, to hold the territory, and to to build and rebuild. But with the dynamics that we see, now, especially when it comes to surrogacy, surrogate warfare, what we see is that. Uh, that type of practice of warfare is really good for delegating uh, power or violence to groups or uh, um, underground to disrupt and to protract. And so um, if you look at, I'd say, the epitome of uh, surrogate warfare these days is Libya. Yeah. Uh, or you could also look at uh, the similar patterns in Syria or uh, in Yemen. The number of actors that are being involved in this conflict is enormous. They are constantly shifting alliances. And what is more important is that um, they are also used by some external actor to deny the strategic objective of the opponents. And so it's no longer about rebuilding, but it's about disrupting. And so uh, in, that, in this condition, coming up with mediation is very difficult. And also an additional factor is that these groups on the ground, most of them have no interest in um, regaining a situation uh, pre-crisis because mm. most of them are benefiting a lot from chaos. Because first of all, there is some um, power grabs on territories. But also then they use that, they use this uh, local uh, domination, if you want, for uh, conducting illegal activities like human trafficking, for instance. And that mm. is very clear example in, in Libya. And so they have vested interest in maintaining a chaotic situation because they are gaining a lot of um, they're benefiting a lot uh, from this situation. So mediating a situation like this to say, well, we will return, we'll try to mediate to return to a more stable situation is actually directly antagonizing the, uh, the, the interest. So uh, this is uh, far from a uh, simple situation and disruption is the key. When actors go on the ground to disrupt the situation, well, there is not much you can do. Mm -hmm. Ville, how do you how do you see this um, question of effective uh, mandates? 
I, I think that uh, in the in the optimal situation, at the end of the day, I, I think that um, you and the Security Council uh, uh, should have um, uh, much more objectivity uh, what comes to the conflict. So, who are the real actors and, and uh, what can be done about <laughs> uh, the situation? But I think that um, uh, in the multilateral setting, I think that uh, there's other elements as well. Uh, like the interests of the of the different countries, and as I said, not only the foreign policy interest, but the uh, uh, internal politics as well. And then I think the third component, which uh, is there always, is the question of the multilateral system. So whatever is decided, I think that that creates uh, a, a route uh, for the future of the multilateralisms as well. So I think that uh, the challenge is that when well, being, building resolution, they are not only based on the and the situation uh, uh, at hand, but there's uh, always um, uh, totally other elements as well, um, which may hinder the, um, uh, uh, the, the building of the resolution and, and at the end of the day giving an effective mandate to the, um, uh, to the uh, special envoys and uh, different institutions. So I fully agree that the objective, there's a lot of uh, challenges on analyzing the situation, understanding a situation, but in then in the multilateral system, there are even more challenges. And I think that the other point is that um, UN, uh, uh, as it has been built for 70 years ago, um, I think that the governments, both the uh, heads of states and um, envoys and ambassadors of different countries. I think that they, back then they had a very different uh, ability to shape uh, their own behavior of their own country. <laughs> mm. um, but now many countries have been, have been coming much more democratic. Uh, many countries have been um, uh, building a very good system of uh, good governance. And at the end of the day, this means also that the single heads of state or single uh, uh, ambassador have quite a little influence on, on what the country as such can be doing. So they can promise very, very little what comes to the deliver, delivering of the, of the decisions. Mm. I think that the, maybe one example of this is the um, uh, uh, JCPOA agreement, especially the um, uh, challenge that the uh, European countries are facing. And uh, what comes to the implementation of the JCPOA and especially the economic front of that, I think that it's not the, about the willingness of the European countries to implement JCPOA, but it's the, it's, the, it's the fact economy relies on independent companies. And because of the uh, uh, good governance, companies have to make their risk assessment not only uh, uh, based on the guidance of the country, but uh, based on their own assessment globally. And at the end of the day, that prevents, uh, uh, in this case, for example, European companies to do businesses with uh, Iran. At the end of the day, the countries who are represented uh, in the multilateral system, those representatives uh, have less power to influence on the situation than they had, for example, 50 years ago. So, Villa, maybe an additional uh, question uh, 
to you um, with regards to organizations such as CMI who don't operate on this official mandate? What, what is the added value of of independent peace mediation organizations um, that we can have in these times of strained international relations? I think that there's a two sides of the coin. Um, I think that the one uh, element which is there and as has been always there, I think that the uh, organization like CMI, I think that uh, those are the places where the uh, knowledge is uh, accumulated uh, uh, from the different peace process uh, over the time. So I think that at the end of the day, it is a hub for the expertise on mediation. And on the other hand, um, uh, organizations like CMI, uh, I think they are much more agile, much more flexible and uh, at the end of the day at least in CMI we try to focus on on our activities on those places and those cases where uh, international community for reason or another <laughs> cannot engage effectively but maybe an organization like CMI who can have a more objectivity what comes to the conflict analysis and, and engagement with different actors. Um, uh, that's the uh, that's the space where where CMI uh, uh, like organizations are needed. But finally, I think that it's not so clear. Uh, CMI was established 20 years ago, and um, back then it was very clear that. Um, uh, there were at least two points that uh, organizations like CMI uh, uh, have added value. Uh, one is uh, uh, giving a channels between the international community and the countries who are maybe isolated from that system. And on the other, engaging the non-state actors. But if you're looking at, for example, what the US have done within the last four years, uh, they have had uh, two uh, high-level summits uh, with uh, President Trump and Kim Jong-un. Uh, they have uh, 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 negotiated agreement directly uh, with Taliban. And uh, also uh, uh, what comes to the relation with Sudan, I think that there have been a lot of improvements. So where CMI-like organizations are needed, I think that the question is much more nuanced than just say that it's for isolated countries or non-state actors. Mm. So, at the core, international cooperation is about finding common solutions to common challenges such as conflicts. As we are now witnessing the decline of this multilateralism, the question is how to make things better. Small states are traditionally strong proponents of international cooperation. What capacities and future role do small states such as Switzerland and Finland have in supporting international cooperation? Jean-Marc, what is your view on this? Right, yeah, yeah. it used to be that a small state, especially uh, neutral and non-aligned states, uh, during the Cold War, especially uh, Switzerland, Sweden, uh, Finland, Austria, were, were playing a key role in, um, in mediation because back then uh, the norms of peacekeeping was that, you know, uh, great power could not provide troops and there was a need for uh, independent and uh, impartial uh, 
states to, 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 to negotiate mandates. Uh, we've seen that uh, with the end of the Cold War, this has changed. You have um, uh, great powers that have taken an increasing role in mediation and also yeah, in, in peacekeeping. And uh, the, 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 the market, the mediation has also become a market, you know, uh, countries and uh, cities are competing for attracting uh, international institution as well as being a hub for negotiation of um, uh, an international uh, peace deal or uh, agreement. And so uh, that makes the role for small states a bit more difficult. I still think that uh, these uh, countries can, can, can play a very important role because um, they don't have the same interest and power than, 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 than other states. So they are always perceived as more impartial. This is uh, still the case for you know, Finland or Switzerland, as a matter of fact. Uh, last week, uh, Switzerland hosted the negotiation between uh, the, the two uh, Yemeni parties um, in, in Switzerland, and then a, a, an agreement was uh, reached on uh, releasing uh, prisoners. So this role is still there. But with increasing competition, I think these states also need to be innovative in the way uh, they uh, pursue uh, mediation, especially in the light of uh, development in uh, technology, where um, if they want, if the states wants to keep the niche uh, or uh, the advantage in the field, they also have to develop, uh, probably to use more, to rely more on technology. And we could think of um, creating, you know, um, these states creating some kind of a brand, like, uh, you know, Geneva is, is well known uh, for uh, global governance. Uh, in Geneva, we call that international Geneva. And Geneva could, if you want, uh, detach this, uh, the, this label from its geographical location to become a brand, you know, to, uh, to promote the Geneva international spirit, which is one of uh, trying to convey different actors around the table, multilateralism. So uh, for, for this, uh, especially if you, um, if you see that the world is becoming uh, more conflictual, there is much more uh, competing center of powers, there will be in the future increasingly a need for impartial actors. And these small states could actually uh, play a role. But then you still have to remain realistic that in the, at the end of the day, power mm -hmm. politics is still a very important characteristic of international relation. And there are so much they can do. But similar as what the UN is doing in setting norms, being a normative power, these states can contribute to also strengthen uh, this, uh, this international norm of uh, mediation and, and multilateralism and, and inclusivity. Mm. Ville, how do you see the role of Finland from this perspective? Well, I would say that uh, it's a question of what's the added value of a small, well-functioning states. But uh, because I think that it's not only small states that uh, uh, makes a good mediator, but I think that there have to be uh, uh, other elements as well in place to to effectively support support the peace process. But at the end of the day, uh, I fully agree with Jean-Marc on, on, on what he was saying. And uh, um, 
uh, small states, uh, by definition, I think that they have an interest much more on the rules-based multilateral uh, system and stability, of, uh, of uh, global stability. <laughs> because we don't have any tools, uh, other tools, to protect <laughs> uh, uh, our countries. So I think that this is the uh, well-known objective uh, for the uh, small states which I think that then is reflected in the in the conflict zones as well um, uh, in a way that uh, everyone understands that there's no additional agenda uh, in addition to those fundamental elements which make then easier for engaging uh, uh, with um, uh, uh, difficult discussions so I think that that's a that's a one looking at uh, the future and the um, and the, uh, especially uh, uh, there was some mentioning of um, uh, uh, evolution of a bipolar uh, uh, world order or tensions between the uh, US and China. I think that uh, we have to acknowledge that there's a third sphere as well, <laughs> the rest of the world, um, which my understanding, most of the countries see not not benefit of choosing either or, <laughs> but most of the countries uh, would want to have a certain level of independence and sovereignty on trading on the both sides, maybe having a military alliance on one side, um, uh, being able to use the te develop technology that can be sold everywhere. And I think that uh, in this case also, small countries have an interesting position because they have to connect to all the spheres mm. and, and they actually um, create a layer where there's a huge amount of connectivity to the different ones at the different layer. And hopefully that positioning can be used in, 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 in mediation and peace processes as well in the future. So, Anet, would you like to wrap up this part of discussion on international cooperation? What what needs to be done to revive international cooperation, and, and what factors will shape multilateralism in the in the future? Well, I fully agree with um, with my colleagues, with Sean, Mark, and Will about the the change in which multilateralism is taking shape. And I mean, what we've discussed about the world moving from a um, bipolar to perhaps a multipolar world is, is important, but I would actually argue that it's more than that and it's more than the rest of the world. We also have moved into a multi-conceptual world even where mm. different people have very different kind of views of how the future world should look like. I mean, there is there is no longer the shared vision of what is good for the world. Some argue that this is um, related to the decline of the liberal world order, for example. And so it's not just about where is power located, but also what are these visions of what is actually good for the world, what we should have in the future. So I think to reinvigorate the, the international cooperation as a first step is that we, we really need to acknowledge and respect these different views, first of all, and then see how we can find common ground in what should be achieved for the future. And an example there is, um, I mean, this goes back again to the UN system, but the sustainable development agenda, for example, that includes SDG 16 on um, peaceful and inclusive societies. 
So there are certain elements where we see common ground and they might be minimal, but again, this is a starting point to then see what, how can we take this forward and how can we um, respect other views of, of what is um, good for the world. Another, again, another example is the agreement on the global call for ceasefire that we mentioned before that, mm. of course, is a norm uh, setter. So I think um, what's important is, first of all, find this common ground beyond different concepts, beyond different views of how the world should look like. But then, of course, also, um, we need to move beyond the just state-bound thinking and be more creative in terms of how other players come in. And that includes not just states, because again, we go back to states, but it also includes NGOs, cities, and I would also add to that the private sector, um, large companies mm. that can come in as creative players that we can um, use as an opportunity. Mm. So cooperation at different levels between different actors is, is, is needed. So if we then move to technological advancements, a second key trend affecting the field of peace mediation, uh, it seems clear that the use of new technologies, um, as mentioned, such as publicly available drones or social media to fuel an advanced conflict is growing. And the use of these new technologies blurs the line lines between war and peace. Jean-Marc, you're, you're an expert in modern warfare. How do you, how do you see this? Yeah, this is very much a, a, a trend that, uh, that we witness. And um, what we see is a democratization of uh, technology, access to technology. And that means proliferation. Um, you know, what we are witnessing in the last 20, 30 years is the increasing digitalization of the world. And on this digitalization, some uh, technology are being built like artificial intelligence. And so once uh, you have developed a product or a specific technology, which might take some, some time, but to release the product in the digital uh, domain, then it's almost impossible to prevent its proliferation. And so what we start to see now, and we had example um, already uh, in the past, for instance, if you look at social media, the first group that understood uh, the power of social media, how to use social media as a force multiplier was ISIS, the Islamic State. They mm. basically uh, relied on a, uh, American doctrine of the uh, 19, which is 90s, which is shock and awe, using ultraviolence uh, by uh, filming decapitation or execution, and then using the virality of uh, social media to have an impact. And what we've seen is that um, they were very successful, at least um, at uh, the, the, the beginning. So, Technology has become a very important dimension in uh, escalating conflict, in uh, getting message across. And what we see currently is the role of information. And I concur with Annette uh, when she said that we need to adopt a much more holistic perspective on mediation. We need to adopt a multi-stakeholders uh, approach. And in this approach, 
big uh, multinational companies in the tech uh, sector have to have a say. If you think about uh, Facebook, for instance, and the role that Facebook uh, has played in uh, uh, displaying information in, um, in with the, the Roaringas, for instance, if you don't have in your uh, mediation efforts at a company like Facebook, uh, mm. it's almost impossible to, uh, to, to, to be successful. So what we see now with social media is that uh, people uh, get stuck into the information bubble because we all rely, uh, we all have a psychological biases and uh, people um, tend to, uh, digest or adopt uh, the information that concur with the existing belief and disregard information that contradict uh, the beliefs. And that creates uh, bubbles where uh, communities are no longer talking to each other. This is one first uh, trend that we see uh, where identities, values are becoming much more important. And what we see is that these different communities are no longer talking to each other. So a, an important role for mediation is trying to build bridges uh, between these communities. Now it comes to more uh, weaponization, if you want the kinetic aspect of um, and the impact of uh, technology and the kinetic aspect. Yes, uh, you, you mentioned drone. Again, if you look at ISIS, uh, ISIS uh, um, bought off-the-shelf drones, replaced the small cameras that uh, these drones were equipped with, with small pods containing hand grenades. And during the Battle of Mosul in 2017, uh, up to 30 uh, Iraqi soldiers were losing life uh, on a weekly basis with attack conducted by ISIS using uh, a tactical uh, weaponized drone. This is the first time the non-state actors has gained a tactical air uh, superiority over traditional actors. So here again, we see a modification of uh, the dynamics of conflict where non-state actors can now rely on off-the-shelf technology, repurpose this technology, and have a strategic impact. And so, an important as, um, aspect that we have to deal with uh, now and in the future is trying to come up with governance framework for, for these emerging technologies so that we can prevent the malicious uses of this technology. Don't get me wrong, technology is not bad. That's not my point. Mm. So on it, uh, are we seeing a future where <clears throat> peacemakers and, and, and peace mediators um, cooperate with big tech companies like like Facebook mentioned here? Well, how, how do you see the future? Well, I think, yeah, I agree with what, what Jomak said about um, the, the, the way in which technology shapes um, th those conflict dynamics. I, I think what I would add to that is really the role of technology, in particular, the shift from the carbon-based economy to a post-carbon world as well. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just that conflict dynamics on the ground are shaped by those technologies, by, by as the methods, um, it actually also relates to, to the places where we see conflict, the locations, because it's driven by the need for resources to produce those new technologies. So natural resources, including, I mean, um, rare earth elements such as cobalt, lithium, graphite, which is necessary to produce batteries and other components of new technologies, they have become in, in, in great demand. And what that means is that they challenge the place of oil and gas at the center of the international community's attention, which means 
there are new vulnerabilities in the international system that we haven't seen before. Today, geopolitical dynamics um, linked to local or regional conflicts and of course also external military interventions, um, they are shaped by the location of um, strategic resources. And this is actually is likely to shift zones of insecurity. Today, we can see, for example, the relevance of oil in the Middle East that informs strategic calculations of international power players. But tomorrow, we might see, for example, graphite in China, cobalt in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or mm. lithium in the shared triangle of Argentina, Chile, and Bolivia. Um, those areas may actually intensify tensions between states, between states and non-state actors, and as we've discussed before, also among several non-state actors that strive for the control over such territories. So I think this is another dimension of technology that we really need to grasp to see where do we need to um, focus our efforts in the future. But I would also say that it all um, brings opportunities, those developments. Mm. I mean, first of all, if we look at the relevance of non-state actors, of more actors, but also of this shift in, in locations, it draws attention to the fact that we need to better understand local level dynamics, see what's happening on the ground to account for all those different actors present and to also understand the kind of non-state order um, that prevails. So just as an example, actually it can often be better for the locals to live under one single group because it gives them um, what I call my work shadow citizenship. You have a mutually reinforcing relationship between the community and the armed actor who provides services, and also actually protection. So that, I mean, we've seen that in cases, even in cases like, like ISIS, but also in, um, in other places in Afghanistan, in Colombia, mm. which might mean that the local population supports those actors rather than in other places where you have many different armed groups or a state of rivalry, which is what I've addressed in my, in my book, Borderland Battles. Mm. So we really need to see what is the, the view of the local population on those dynamics. Also, with regard to the transnationality, the, the international the dimensions that we've discussed, um, I think it signals that we need to move away from a purely state-centric approach that equates conflicts with state territory up until the borderline. That's why, for example, at Oxford, we've developed an approach where we focus on um, settings of organized violence that can spill across borders, where we have a dynamic unit of analysis, conflict shapes, so it's no longer states as the unit of analysis. And then also on the point of technologies, I mean, we've talked about the, um, the negative consequences, the disastrous consequences um, that new technologies can have. But there's also a lot of exciting work on peace technologies. For example, how the use of social media groups helps um, communities to stay safe, how it's being used to, um, to facilitate the sharing of, of information, um, we also know that new technologies help democratize access, give um, a voice to locals more than before. Of course, there's still certain shortcomings. Not everyone has access to those technologies. Not everyone is able to, to use it appropriately. But I think that's something that we are moving to. And again, I think there's a lot of potential for peace mediation to make use of these new tools. Mm. So, Ville, how do you see the implications of this technological change to, to peace mediation? What, what does it mean in practice? How, how peacemakers need to react to this and maybe comment on some of the positive uh, sides of, of things that Annette, Annette mentioned here? 
I think that one has to look at the um, um, uh, positive sides as well. And I think that the now uh, the social media certainly certainly have the um, uh, uh, a real uh, a positive uh, layer as well. What comes as uh, Anette said, what comes to democratization and so on. And the next uh, 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 element is maybe the question of, of, uh, of um, uh, artificial intelligence and the big data. <laughs> because now I think that they, they are mostly used for the companies themselves. So uh, 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 the data is in the, in the, uh, uh, it's owned by the companies. But I think that the, there will be a point, at least in Europe, uh, where the data is uh, available for all the citizens. And the algorithms crunching the data are available for use of the other citizens. So mm -hmm. I think that uh, that will also increase the transparency and democracy in the uh, in the global system. And uh, I fully agree that uh, we have to work with the Facebook and the companies who have the data and and the algorithms. But I think that we should not only work uh, in that model where the data is owned by the com uh, companies, but I think that uh, uh, what comes to the peacemaking, we have to take to account that there's an element of a government-owned data <laughs> and algorithms, and there's an element of a citizen-owned data and algorithms. And somehow combining these three elements I think that it's a sphere where uh, uh, peacemakers who are working at the global level uh, uh, have to balance between. Mm. Thanks. So, dear guests, uh, to sum up our discussion, um, in your opinion, what is needed from the practice of peacemaking to adapt to this new reality that we have discussed in this episode, if it wants to stay relevant in the post-COVID-19? word. Would you like to start, uh, Jean-Marc? Yeah, I think what uh, was already mentioned during this um, th this episode, I think that um, there is a need to broaden the type of factors uh, that are participating uh, in uh, mediation efforts. Um, there is a need to anchor the uh, multinational companies, the private sector. The problem there is that um, the objectives of these companies are not the same as uh, the NGOs. Uh, the rational are not the same. It's much more, it's obviously commercial. And so there might be conflict of, um, of interest. That say, though, uh, there are also new opportunities provided by uh, technology, uh, as was mentioned by both uh, Ville and, uh, and Annette. And uh, I think, in a way, uh, the, the, this business has to reinvent itself by uh, using uh, technology as a, not a force multiplier, but, but as a mediation multiplier. Uh, but you have to bear in mind that. Um, this evolution will be uh, done in an environment where there are very much contested concepts of the world. And what uh, Ville said about um, owning the, uh, data and uh, people uh, owning their own data, we see that there is a lot of contention on these ideas 
of um, uh, data data rights that are not shared uh, by uh, every uh, state uh, in the system. So there is a need for innovative solution, but technology enables also to uh, create movements that are coming up from, uh, from, from, from the bottom, from the bottom up. And so if technologies, uh, technology can aggregate this, um, the, these people, then this will have an effect on, uh, on mitigation probing. Mm -hmm. Annette, you have highlighted the, the fact that we need more more holistic view of, of mediation. Is, is, that, is this your, your key message? It's definitely part of it, yes. Um, I would say there are three um, main points that, that are really relevant. The first one is to have this holistic approach is um, a perception-aware approach that really focuses on, on, well, on people on the ground to better understand why they are acting in certain ways. Um, what I mentioned before about the different concepts, right? Um, but also how they are affected. For example, in the case of shadow citizenship, why they would support certain groups. Mm. And that is also related to information management. I mean, we've seen, um, it was discussed at the beginning, the spread of rumors, of fake news, of information um, warfare that also um, adds to conflict dynamics. So that means we really need to think about better education so that people are aware of the potential of rumors and are more careful about fact-checking, for example, on who violates ceasefires agreements, whether a threat pamphlet is real or whether someone calls for violent action. Because mm. ultimately, it's, it doesn't necessarily mean or matter what happens, but actually what are people's perceptions of what happens. And this is what shapes conflict and the possibility for peace. Then the second point related to that also that makes it holistic is a a global approach, which means that we need to have an approach that is locally grounded, that I mentioned mm. before, to understand what's happening, but that connects with global development rather than looking at this as a siloed approach where some um, professionals would only work at the local level and others only at the at the global. It's really mm. the, the connection between the two that matters today. And then finally, um, related to that is um, that we really need to become more flexible and more agile including through the use of um, peace technologies to account for those constantly changing conflict dynamics that really goes into multiple directions. I mean, it includes the actors involved we've discussed, the methods used, the resources um, that fuel conflict, the, the environments, the places where conflict takes place, and finally also the, the impact it has on people. So these three, element, three elements, the perception-aware approach, the global approach and the flexible and agile approach. I think this together leads us to the holistic approach that we really need in um, peacemaking and peace mediation. Mm. So, Ville, as a final note, what, do, what is your view on this? How to adapt to this new new reality? Uh, I'll, come, I'll, I'll come back a bit on a couple of steps. And uh, while I fully agree on, on, and I have really enjoyed the discussion. I fully agree that the, the uh, conflicts and the peacemaking system is um, uh, coming increasingly uh, difficult to understand, complex with the different layers, actors, and so on. I think that at the end of the day, uh, the the uh, fundamental principles of uh, peace mediation still holds. So despite that everything is difficult, uh, I think that uh, one needs a willingness uh, to find a solution. <laughs> uh, 
and on many fronts, uh, uh, if one uh, uh, wants to advance and negotiate a solution, uh, uh, you need a compromises. So you cannot gain all the things that you want, <laughs> but uh, you have to do a compromises. And also, thirdly, uh, uh, you have to engage with the right people. <laughs> you have to engage with those actors who are who have a power to influence the conflict, and you have to imp, uh, uh, engage also with those actors who who are part of the broader system, who in the future may shape the system in uh, how to say in a positive or negative manner. I think that uh, despite the fact that uh, uh, this is increasingly challenging, extre uh, extremely difficult, still I would say that the basic principles of, uh, of mediation still holds and the uh, willingness to do, uh, willingness to reach a solution and, and find a compromises, that's still in the heart of our peacemaking. Dear guests, thank you for this uh, interesting and important discussion. Thank you. Thank you, so, Thank you much. so much. Thank you for listening to CMI's Peace Talks. You can find our podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts and iTunes. And please visit our website at cmi.fi. Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode. Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.